Welcome to Lurking in the Fog, a podcast for those who seek to understand the criminals and tyrants that inhabit our world. Each episode, we host a guest who has entered the fog, encountered who and what lurked within, and lived to tell their tale. Our goal is to showcase how crime affects day-to-day operations, from something as simple as accidentally setting up a factory in the wrong neighborhood and having to deal with criminal groups to ensure the safety of employees and cargo, to governments using state actors to pressure, attack, and harm you in order to get their desired bribe or kickback. Crime operates in disguise. Rarely will it show its true colors in plain eyesight. Crime thrives in the gray. In situations where confusion and chaos are the norm, crime is king. As such, it lurks in the fog. I am your host, the Eurasian Eagle Owl, also known as the Tiger Owl. As a global investigator for Owl Consultancy Group, I will be guiding you through the fog and protecting you from what lurks within. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Lurking in the Fog. I am your host, the Tiger Owl, and we're here today diving into the digital fog, a world where cyber criminals operate. But does the cyber world translate into the real world or just what happens online stays online and it's a bunch of kids playing around? My guest today is... Somebody who goes under the street name of Blockchain Mike or Michael Fascinello, if you want to be formal and serious. He is a seasoned private sector compliance executive and thought leader specializing in anti-money laundering, countering terrorist financing, global economic and trade-based sanctions, and illicit finance with a current focus on the digital assets and blockchain technology space. His career spanned 10 years in the federal government with the U.S. Department of Justice and the Treasury before joining the private sector. Mike is now with Anchain, and he's going to tell us what lurks within the digital fog. So, Mike, how'd you enter the fog? So I was working, uh, I'm currently, as you said, currently I work for Anchain AI as their crypto compliance officer. They're a blockchain security and risk management firm out of uh, San Jose, California, Silicon Valley. Formerly, I had worked for uh, another similar firm called Blockchain Intelligence Group. And ironically, both uh, had uh, something to do with the case we're going to talk about. Uh, One Sunday night in early 2022, I think it was January 2022, um, I was uh, I was working online, finishing up, uh, going through some emails, and I caught some chatter on Reddit, and uh, noticed that people were complaining about being scammed uh, in an NFT rug pull. Uh, uh, and so I was interested in what this rug pull was, um, what the project was they were looking at. So I I spoke with some of the people on Reddit, uh, sent them direct messages. Um, was trying to figure out what the project was about, and it was called the Frosties.io project. It was an open sea um, NFT art collection that consisted of these upside down ice cream cone figurines with uh, with like special um, aesthetics. They had hats, they had cigars, they had all these different things, sort of like a board ape yacht club collection, but it was made of ice cream cones, and it was called the Frosties. So, um, Mike, before you continue. Can just for the audience, what is a rug pull? 
Ah, so a rug pull is basically your run-of-the-mill uh, exit scan, except it's performed on the blockchain using digital assets. So there's been crypto rug pulls, there's been NFT rug pulls, basically an exit scan uh, where uh, the collector collection uh, developers or the project managers entice people to invest, and then as soon as a certain threshold is reached from a monetary standpoint, they exit the uh, project or exit the um, uh, you know the initial coin offering or something like that, basically skating away with people's money. So it's it's known as an exit scam in uh, in the traditional finance world. Very very interesting. So back to the frosties. Mm-hmm. What was going on? Yeah. So uh, I believe it was late December, early January. Uh, the time might be slightly off just uh, from memory, but. Uh, so the project uh, was opened up and it, it had a certain threshold. I think it was something like uh, 2,000 Frosties was supposed to be sold or something like that. And these things sold out basically overnight. Um, and the the uh, investment part of this was you were supposed to get the piece of digital art, but along with it, you were supposed to get perks. And when I was talking with the victims, the, the, the thing that I kept coming back to was but how is this a scam? How is this a rug pull? Because if they paid for their art and they got their art, I mean, to me, that's that's you know that's just a contractual agreement um, being executed. So where's the actual crime here? Uh, and I, as I started to dig more into it, when people started telling me, oh, but we were supposed to have these perks like uh, online membership in certain uh, like clubs, like you know Board Apes Yacht Club, like they had a, like a little membership area where you could go and you could actually do things and communicate with people and interact. Um, and so the Frosties was promising this. They were also promising. Uh, breeding capabilities, which uh, is actually a, uh, a, a term of art in the digital world. Uh, it's basically being able to um, take one Frosty, take another Frosty, or take one digital asset and another, another digital asset and combine the two and actually end up generating a third, if you would, um, via smart contracts and some other uh, some other protocols. Um, and so in the end, what happened was these people invested in the project. They got their piece of digital art, which actually in a lot of rug, uh, rug pulls, they don't get the art at all. They just invest in this thing and then mint day comes. Minting is when when the art's actually supposed to be produced and and uh, and given to, or distributed to the uh, to the investors. But uh, they, they got their digital art. They just didn't get any of the perks. And so that's when I said, oh, OK, so we actually do have. A, uh, a depri- deprivation of, uh, of promised, um, you know, promised materials here. So, uh, promised value, if you would. And so, um, that's when I realized it was an actual scam. And I said, all right, let me let me dig into this more. So, I put it into our blockchain analytics platform, and I was taking a look at it. And when I realized that the money, all this money, was two point two million dollars worth, was basically hopping from OpenSea's wallet, or the wallet on OpenSea, I should say, the project wallet, to another wallet then being split off into various locations, stealth addresses, uh, mixers, tumblers, um, a little bit of Coinbase, a little bit of Kraken, some, uh, I think it was uh, one of those two exchanges, I think it was Coinbase. Um, then I realized they're actually starting the laundering process, right? You've got the placement, then you've got the layering. And so when I saw all this layering happening, that's when I realized that this was real nefarious activity. And I actually reached out to one of our partners at the time over at IRS Criminal Investigations, IRSCI, and uh, and basically teed up the case for them. So IRS took over the uh, the case, and uh, I don't know what happens, uh, you know, on the back end, other than what I've seen in government from my prior time. But it's sort of we don't talk about that because it's uh, tradecraft. <laughs> 
So we'll just say that the IRS did what they do um, with a variety of um, blockchain analytics tools, OSINT tools, open source intelligence, um, and they were able to uh, nail down that uh, two uh, two youngsters out of California, two 20-somethings out of California, um, were behind this whole thing. And within uh, three months of me teeing up the case for them, um, they were able to actually drop an indictment. And it was the first indictment ever, not only of um, of an NFT project in 2022, but, uh, but uh, the, because the Frosties was actually the first NFT project of 2022 that launched, uh, I, I ended up finding out. But it was also the first time that uh, NFTs were ever actually involved in a federal indictment. So it was pretty, uh, pretty watershed moment and pretty groundbreaking. That is fascinating. Why the IRS and not the FBI? Well, I think uh, the the IRS has this, um, they have the stigma of like being associated with taxes and that's not all they do. They do a variety of different things, um, whether it you know, comes down to obviously tax enforcement, but they also have a lot to do with illicit finance, come to find out. Um, and so, whereas the FBI, when you have to go through IC3, uh, the Internet uh, Crimes Complaint Center, um, and uh, and some other protocols. I think that the the ties were stronger on the back end. We had some more direct ties uh, to IRSCI, but it's also I think the um, the the process, if you would, the bureaucratic process was a little bit lighter uh, going through IRSCI than than the bureau. And that's not to say the bureau does anything wrong. It's just they have certain protocols uh, to you know get these things take to have these things taken a look at, um, and it was easier to do so for us uh, with IRSCI. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Now, you said you did the whole tracing and packaging up and anyway, gift wrapping it for, for the IRS. Mm-hmm. Were you able to trace it to the California boys or was that the IRS's doing? Yeah, that's the IRS's doing. They're, they're the ones that are able to issue the legal subpoenas to go after, for example, you know, IP addresses and things like that. Uh, VPNs, you know, if they need to try to trace through those uh, by going through, um, you know, like the public utilities companies and things like that. That's just the the extent to where, you know, my my bridge sort of stops and their bridge uh, not not begins, but they have more tools in their toolkit than I do as a, as a run of the mill citizen now. That's that's really interesting. Have you seen any other rug pulls similar to the frosties or yeah i mean i can't as far as naming the projects off the bat they're they they have such obscure names that it's it's difficult to do that but uh oh boy i I don't even want to mistakenly um say one that's a that's actually a legit uh project and then and then give it a black mark when it doesn't have to have one so i'm going to refrain from actually naming other projects but there is a uh operation called rug pull finder uh, they're on Twitter. I think they're at Rug Pull Finder uh, as the handle on Twitter. But if you just Google Rug Pull Finder, um, you should be able to find uh, this uh, this company, and it's run by a really great guy named uh, Nick Horniacek uh, or Horniacek. I'm not sure how to pronounce his last name. He's going to kill me. Um, <laughs> but yeah, Nick uh, Nick uh, got together with another partner and uh, and developed a company called Rug Pull Finder, and their main uh, mission is to go out there and actually give. Uh, all these um, NFT projects a score, basically a risk rating. And uh, they have a really great um, 
percentage. They have a really great record with uh, with getting it right as far as what's a sc- what's likely to be a scam uh, and what's more likely to be a traditional uh, holistically healthy um, a project. So. In the crypto space, is rug pull the main threat? Or, or let me rephrase that. Are rug pulls the main threat or are there other kinds of threats um, from just like crypto in general? Uh, this is not talking like, say, like pig butchering, which is somebody willingly giving off up their crypto and like this other person taking it away. Um, but just in crypto itself. Yeah, like like uh, d- directly relating to the technology itself versus weaknesses with the humans involved. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because a lot of people like to attribute like the FTX uh, crisis to uh, to crypto, and it's really, I mean, crypto was the asset involved, but it was really the sins of the flesh that actually took down FTX. So um, when you go through uh, crypto, like it, the 2022 was probably one of the worst years that we had seen in terms of exploits uh, and hacks and things of that nature. And uh, sure enough, based on our current intel at Anchain AI, it looks like uh, 2023 is shaping up to be as bad, if not a worse uh, scenario. But going by the numbers, um, 2022, there was roughly 4.1, I want to say 4.1, 4.2 billion um in uh, in uh not only exit scams but also exploits hacks things like that uh, i believe 1.8 billion of it was attributed uh alone to smart contracts it was roughly 40 percent 47 percent um of the, the worst uh, events in 2022 in the crypto industry happened through smart contracts alone so um, protocol vulnerabilities bridge vulnerabilities uh, uh network attacks wallet attacks all these different technological vulnerabilities uh, make up the space and I would say rug pulls is probably one of the one of the um, the lesser threats to be honest with you because the the rug pulls are just like you know we were talking about sins of the flesh the um, the rug pulls are probably the the easier ones to pull off because at the same time the the humans behind them are they're less knowledgeable than they should be. They haven't done their due diligence, you know, things like that. Whereas the um, the code vulnerabilities, it takes a certain level of um, level of criminal to get there. But very, very quickly, we're finding that uh, DPRK, for example, North Korea, I mean, they have a whole army now of, uh, of threat actors uh, that are posing a huge threat to the industry. And they don't have to contact anybody to do their do their evil work. They just go and they they attack the codes, they attack the wallets, they attack all these different um, vulnerabilities online, and they don't have to worry about scamming somebody, you know, like pig butchering. So I think, I think that the 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 numerics like why NFT rug pulls or why pig butchering may may be such a uh, small number um, in terms of uh, in terms of revenue for the dark markets is because uh, they have to kind of curate that, right? They have to curate that um, that scam. They have to talk with human beings. They have to get develop rapport and and gain trust, and then eventually do what they want to do. So it's a it's a more time consuming process. So the quicker way to actually steal the steal the assets is to just go and steal the assets, find a vulnerability, get in, get out, done. And um, and that's what we're seeing in the threat landscape right now. And. What's the best way to protect against those vulnerabilities? How how do you even know if you're vulnerable? Yeah, so um, Anchain's developed a tool called Scream Smart Contract uh, Review uh, Engine, 
and uh, it's got an amazing ability to break down the computer code um, into plain language using chat GPT and some other uh, tradecraft behind the scenes, uh, proprietary stuff that I can't talk about, but uh, it's a really cool uh, platform. You can throw in uh, a, a, a protocol code and have it broken down into layman's terms, basically, so you can understand what's going on with the contract um, and see if there's any vulnerabilities, but to actually do the smart contract audits. So we have a team that does that as well. So repeatedly auditing uh, projects to see uh, if there's any code vulnerabilities or things like that uh, is a huge plus. Um, and then also just having your your overall um, health in, in the uh, in, in according to the threat landscape, you know, like having, uh, you know, SOC 2 compliance in place and things like that, data privacy, uh, security, all those different things uh, uh, holistically um, make up a healthy, uh, a healthy scenario where you can avoid these nefarious um, activities. As a normal person and even as a business who is trying to enter the crypto space or even trying to understand the crypto space, trying to adopt crypto, how can I best protect against criminals and illicit actors? You you mentioned the North Koreans. Chinese also have quite a hacking regime. The Iranians are known as well for trying to get their hands on crypto. What is a good strategy? for for somebody to take like how do i know if a transaction that i'm about to take is going to be a legitimate transaction well i'd say first of all uh knowing your counterparty um having good internet hygiene to begin with uh so you know like it's it's probably um you know, people are tired of hearing it, but it's, you know, hovering over those those addresses when you get an email that looks like it might be, you know, something legitimate. Well, I always hover over the that email address, even if it's something that that I think is legitimate, just to make sure, um, because so many of those email addresses out there now are spoofs and things like that. So people can uh, can um, you know breach your email uh, or or breach you know breach your finances, quite frankly, by going through your email. Um, so just having good internet hygiene to begin with, but knowing your counterparty is the next level up. You know, if you're going to make a transaction, have a transaction take place, um, you know, make sure you're aware of like who the other party you're you're interacting with is. If it's uh, if it's a friend or family member, that's pretty easy. If it's somebody online that you're buying something from with crypto, that's a little bit of a different story. But, um, you know, there's there's ways that you can tell using, for example, if you take a look at Etherscan or some of those uh, those of those free uh, blockchain analytics software is out there, um, you know, you can sort of do a little bit of due diligence on the background. If somebody's asking you to send crypto to a certain wallet address, you don't want to just randomly do that. You want to actually see, uh, you know, what's behind the address, what, who have they been interacting with? Has there been any nefarious uh, attribution to it? So um, those, and, and crypto is, it's, I'm just going to just like say it flat out. It's a tough space to do due diligence in because of the pseudonymity, uh, you know, of the transactions on the blockchain, you you don't unless you actually know the person in real life and they've given you their crypto address. You know, if you're dealing with somebody online, uh, it's different when you're going through PayPal or going through eBay versus you know using the blockchain. Like it is a it is a more vulnerable uh, ecosystem. It's a, a to to corruption and to to nefarious activity. Um, you're more easily scammed on on crypto in in many cases because of because of the pseudonymity behind the parties. Um, that you could be dealing with. So, you're bringing up a very fascinating point because one of the biggest arguments that blockchain advocates say is transparency. 
It is going to bring more transparency. Um, there, it's it's auditable. You know the money movement, but yet you just say it's prone to corruption and to nefarious activity. How do how do you explain that juxtaposition? Yeah, I mean the the, the whole the whole point of uh, of cryptocurrency was to remove the intermediary parties, right? To give more financial freedom to the people to. Uh, you know, take out the uh, intermediary fees and the time involved with transactions. But there, there's always something given up. When you gain more freedom, there's more vulnerability. When you when you have less vulnerability, you have less freedom. We saw that after 9-11 when they, you know, started doing all the security at the airports and everything. So, you know, just like with, with planes, do we want to be, you know, safer? And as a result, we'll take off a belt, we'll take off shoes, and we'll, you know, do what we have to do at the checkpoints because we want to fly on a bombless aircraft uh, at the same time in crypto the more uh, the more freedom you have or the less intermediary parties you have um, it's just it's just naturally going to be a less secure environment so you have to do the due diligence and you have to be uh, more cognizant of of how you're transferring funds who you're transferring those funds to and uh, by what mechanism you're doing so and I always like to say like you know everybody has the uh, the um, the old adage in crypto is uh, is not your keys, not your coins, but there really is something to that. The, the closer those digital assets are held um, by you, um, the more secure those assets will be until they leave your hands. So, you know, versus using Coinbase or Kraken or any of the, um, you know, out uh, the exchanges out there, uh, if you're going to do person to person activity, you're probably better off doing that with your own cold storage wallet, like a ledger or something like that. Or Trezor, or whatever, whatever um, your preference is as far as brand. There's a whole bunch of different hard wallets you can use. So, crypto also gets the reputation for being the favorite currency of cyber criminals, particularly in the dark web. Why is that the case? Is it is crypto only used for dirty money or for dirty transactions, or is there a legitimate crypto? No, there's always legitimate things. Uh, as with anything in real life, there, there's real life in the tangible world, I should say. Um, there, there's always good and there's always bad. There's always light and there's always dark. So with crypto, you know, it started out as just a decentralized, uh, you know, value transfer system, uh, and eventually, you know, among the dark web, where uh, where things sort of uh, are less uh, surveilled by the government. Uh, you know, less less controlled, certainly by the government and by law enforcement. You know, this was a payment mechanism that sort of uh, caught on much quicker. Uh, you know, in that world than it did in, in than it does in the uh, you know in the non dark web world, if you would, the the traditional finance world. And that's because uh, you, you'll find that criminals tend to be the more savvy, the more uh, tech inclined. They they sort of are always on the cutting edge of what's next, what's new, what's uh, the easiest thing that I can wander uh, and transfer my my ill-gotten gains with. Uh, and so crypto was just, uh, it, it, it automatically sort of lent itself to that because of the pseudonymity, because of the, uh, you know, real-time payments, uh, real-time settlements, um, because of the intermediary-less, uh, the effortless, if you would, uh, transfer of funds cross border. I mean, this it changed the game. It took cash off the streets. If you talk with any DEA agent, they're going to tell you like nowadays the cash is really, it's uh, it's it used to flood the streets and now it's flooding the blockchain. We're seeing that with the cartels uh, and the Chinese with the fentanyl crisis and uh, you know going through Mexico and things like that. So it's uh, it's really interesting how 
uh, crypto was designed for one thing and then was adopted by uh, you know by the by the dark web and 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 their uh, their members and users. Have you seen typologies by specific groups? Like, say, for example, cartels tend to use crypto this way. Uh, the Chinese use crypto this other way. And not that all the Chinese are bad, but I'm talking about the Chinese illicit actors. Um, the North Koreans, um, how are they using it? Is there any particular typology to the type of group that is using crypto? Or is it just a free-for-all? I think, uh, well, first of all, the question is more, uh, it's more aligned with probably uh, like a, a threat analyst or, or an intel analyst versus myself. I'm more of the legal regulatory uh, you know, side of things. So I don't, I don't dabble as much in the trenches as I'd like to anymore. Um, I just happened to be doing that uh, with the Frosties that one night. I was just uh, on Reddit for other reasons, you know, checking out some other forums and uh, like Wall Street bets and stuff like that. And then I went over to the crypto forums and, and kind of stumbled across the Frosties, kind of fell backwards into it. Um, but, uh, you know, if you ask the Intel analysts now, from what I hear, I think it's it's kind of too new to really be able to um, assign, you know, met methodologies or typologies to the Chinese or to the cartels or uh, other, you know, organized crime or things like that. I think that they're all just starting to use it, starting to get used to it, um, you know, as a means, as an alternative means of uh, moving money instead of bulk cash smuggling or gift cards or things like that, or sorry, pre prepaid cards, they call them. Um, I think it's just too new as far as the, uh, the usage for us to really delineate typologies between groups yet. I think they all just uh, have a way of using it um, on the dark web to transfer you know, from uh, from cartel, uh, you know, cartel trafficker to a hitman uh, to pay off for a hit or, you know, for for paying for uh, precursor, you know, precursor chemicals or things like that. So just basically an alternative means of uh, intermediary less real time settlement payments. If somebody steals my crypto, how can I get it back? So the first answer to that is once the crypto is gone uh, from your wallet, it's gone from your wallet. It's not like uh, you can't have a refund, no chargebacks in crypto. That's one of the reasons why uh, why merchants actually like crypto is because there's really no there's no opportunity for chargebacks if somebody wants to basically uh, politely request their money back for some reason. It's really up to the uh, the counterparty to decide whether or not there's a valid or, or acceptable to them reason uh, to give you your money back. In the case of scams, uh, very, very difficult and very time consuming. Um, I mean, even I can I can give an example of a case where we're still working on now. I'll just be super, uh, super high level about it. But about a year, uh, a gentleman uh, gave me a call and had claimed to have uh, been scammed out of his crypto on a uh, on one of the compliant exchanges. Uh, we uh, we went through how that happened and there was uh, involvement of a phone call and an email. Uh, I think it was sort of a joint phishing scam scenario. Uh, anyway, the uh, the uh, counterparty ended up gaining access to the gentleman's crypto account, uh, and I think there may have been some sim swapping involved. But you know, he's out there on the West Coast. They the perpetrators had a VPN at least that was using or a proxy that was bouncing off of the East Coast. Um, in a matter of minutes, the man's uh, account was uh, was drained to the tune of like three hundred and seventy thousand dollars worth of Bitcoin. Um, there was there was no no red flags popped up on the ex exchange side of things, which sort of you know piques my interest as a compliance officer. Um, but anyway, uh, the gentleman lost his funds and came to us and said, "Hey, what can we do about this?" 
uh, Anchain now uh, does offer it as a service, but at, at the time we were kind of just tooling around with things pro bono and trying to help people out. Um, and you know, you're able to use blockchain analytics to trace the funds from you know once they came. So we trace it from victim uh, through whatever you know methodologies they use, and usually it's uh, it's swapping of chains. Uh, or hopping of addresses. Sometimes it goes through mixers and we just trace it to the next uh, choke point that we can and try to reach that choke point either before they're able to figure out that it's being traced uh, or before they're able to move it to the next uh, the next spot in, in, on the blockchain. Uh, if you can get these things, if you can sort of um, latch onto them, uh, you know, knowledge-wise while they're at a compliant choke point, like if I see it hit a compliant exchange, I'm then able to alert the compliance team on that side of things that some nefarious activity has taken place that um, they may want to, you know, uh, file a suspicious activity report at the same time if they could, you know, uh, slow down use of that account or, or freeze that account basically while law enforcement gets uh, gets a subpoena in place. Some exchanges will do that if you're able to show them the analytics that back it up. Some of them will do that before even having a subpoena, but most often they, they do require law enforcement uh, intervention uh, in order to do what I call a freeze and seize. Um, where they'll freeze the account so it can't uh, transfer the money uh, further on the blockchain and then law enforcement can actually get the legal approval from uh, from a judge to seize it uh, while an indictment and a, and a criminal case take place. So it's very time consuming. It's, uh, it's time consuming uh, on both ends of it, both for the people working the case and then also, you know, the victims. Um, there is no quick and easy uh, solution to it. Uh, it's just a, it's just a lot of um, you know uh, OSINT work and and blockchain analytics work and then uh, liaising with law ens- law enforcement and letting the legal process do what the legal process does. As a criminal, what's more appealing, crypto crime or a traditional crime, in your opinion? So there's really no such thing as crypto crime. There's uh, there's just traditional crime that involves cryptocurrency. A lot of people call it crypto crime, but it really is just traditional fi- financial crime uh, leveraging a different asset. So just like uh, you know, you've got your exit scams turned into rug pulls on uh, you know between traditional finance and then NFTs or other projects. Um, then you've got also romance scams, and romance scams turned into what we call now pig butchering because that's what the that's what the Chinese actors behind those uh, you know those nefarious activities were calling their victims. They were they were calling them pigs for the slaughter, so turned into pig butchering. But uh, what you're seeing is you're seeing the repeat of so many different typologies of financial crime in the traditional space have found a outlet in the digital world because it's less regulated, it's less surveilled, um, there is less intermediary involvement, uh, there's there's less capability of intermediary involvement, um, there's pseudonymity, uh, there's, so there's less PII involved, personally identifiable information. Uh, all those things basically have, uh, have allowed a, a flood of uh, traditional financial crime to invade uh, the digital asset space. There's a lot of people that believe that community governance is the solution to crypto. And what you're saying here is the reason why all these scams are taking place is because there's no compliance, there's no oversight. Yet crypto was created not to have compliance, not to have oversight. So what is the answer? Is community governance the answer? 
or is more compliance, more regulations, more oversight the answer? I think it depends on who you ask and what the purpose is, uh, what the end goal is. I mean, if the end goal is worldwide mainstream adoption of crypto, I think that the uh, original um, ambitions of the creators uh, are flawed because there can never be mainstream adoption without a certain amount of healthy um, ecosystem based on security and oversight and, and proper governance. Um, so I think that it was sort of a flawed viewpoint to begin with that there was going to suddenly be this utopian environment where all people can interact uh, as they please at whatever time, at whatever value, and not have any sort of government intervention or surveillance because what we're seeing is when that happens, um, the, the, the less intermediaries there are and the less hurdles there are, the more opportunity there is for uh, basically quick and dirty um, illicit finance to to take place. Um, you know, so when you're talking about decentralized finance, uh, like pure DeFi, you know, we, we're looking at something right now that I think has been coined uh, CDFI, which is centralized decentralized finance. Um, and what we mean by that is you're taking the, uh, the ambitions and the goals behind DeFi, decentralized finance, and you're bootstrapping some of the uh, traditional financial um, compliance and governance and regulation and all that to it to sort of give it that hybrid injection of, uh, of a healthy ecosystem and, um, you know, uh, clamping down on nefarious activity and things like that. Um, people aren't, they're just not going to interact with this stuff on a daily basis. They're not going to use it to buy a Big Mac or buy a Starbucks if, you know, if they have $500 in their crypto wallet and then, you know, two hours later, somebody could scam that from them uh, or or just hack that from them. So um, I think that the the quicker that the, uh, you know, the, the regulators, particularly in the United States, because we seem to be fence sitting a lot and sort of sitting on our hands in legislature, but the sooner that some of the original uh, or some of the more um, more effective uh, traditional finance regulations can be implemented uh, in, in cryptocurrency, um, the quicker some of this nefarious activity is going to see its way out and, and stay on the dark web where it belongs. Um, and uh, and then you'll be able to see some actual mainstream adoption. I mean, like when, when I go to McDonald's right now around the corner, there actually is uh, the ability to pay by Bitcoin and pay by, I believe it was US dollar coin or, or Tether, one of those um, uh, quasi-stable coins or stable tokens. Um, so that's, that's um, you know, that's that's heartening because uh, it means that they're trying, you know, mer merchants are trying to implement this stuff so you can use it on a daily basis. I think that sometimes, you know, if you're if you're using a hard wallet uh, and which is one of the, as you know, one of the more secure ways uh, to use this type of currency or type of asset, um, it's difficult to use a hard wallet on a daily basis. So it's sort of a situation where you have to decide what your risk tolerance is, what your threshold is, how much how much of this, uh, you know, digital asset in cash value do I want to keep on hand, able to use on a daily basis freely, because you can do that through mobile apps and through uh, compliant exchanges and things like that. But if you, you know, want to uh, buy a Big Mac with a hard wallet, it's going to take you probably much more time than going up to the cash register and just paying cash. So there's always the trade off. And that's why I kind of use the uh, the example of, uh, you know, air, air traffic after 9-11 or air travel after 9-11. Makes sense. Now, if you operate in the United States, there's a lot of regulations, a lot of legislation, and chances are 
while not all exchanges are perfect, they're at least trying to. Is there a way of knowing if you're interacting with a wallet that is in a foreign exchange? Is that something that you can see in the blockchain? Um, or, or is there probably maybe indicators, given the fact that there's a lot of pseudonymity and anonymity in the blockchain, of being able to know, like, hey, I think I'm interacting with a with an Iranian or somebody from the Middle East, and I might want to, I should probably raise my eyebrow. It's more advanced. Uh, it's more advanced than most uh, open source tools will allow you to get. Like, you can't tell if somebody's in in Iraq or Iran or or Yugoslavia if you're, uh, you know, if you're if you're um using etherscan uh it, it involves uh being able to track uh you know gps locations uh and and vpns and and uh, uh and ip addresses and things like that so it's sort of uh, it's a combination actually of of blockchain analytics and also uh open source intelligence off the blockchain that allows triangulation of locations and and, and things like that so it's it's not easy. Um, that's why I say, you know, to, to sort of like uh, people should operate with uh, unknown counterparties in crypto with more than a grain of salt, maybe like a pound and a half of salt, um, because it's just it's just that that much more difficult to understand where the counterparty is and who the counterparty is uh, if you don't know them in real life. Including exchanges. Well, isn't that just the basic precaution that everybody should take on their day-to-day -day life. If you don't know who you're dealing with, shouldn't you at least have your guard up? Precisely. Yes, absolutely. Like that, that's why I bring up the email, you know, phishing, uh, phishing schemes. And, you know, even if I see an email on my personal email come in from Coinbase or Gemini or whatever I, I might happen to be using at the time, uh, I still hover over that email address to see if it's actually coming from that domain or if it's coming from, you know, some odd, you know, XYZ at BitPay or whatever.com. Uh, you really just want to always be on the lookout for uh, for the scams. And if you're if you're out, out looking for the scammers, uh, you know, you can you can sometimes find them before they find you. So. So take a more offensive approach instead of a defensive approach is what you're saying? Yeah, there should always be um, aligned, aligned with your defense. There should be some level of offense, just like a soccer game or a, or, or a football game, right? You have defense and offense, um, and uh, and they they all play a certain part. So, like in your in your internet hygiene, you should have those concepts of of being on the offense while at the same time, you know, playing defense. Uh, you know, you're going to use your um, your virus scanners and uh, and your firewalls and things like that as your defense, but on your as your offense, you're going to use your brain. Uh, and take a look at, you know, email addresses that come in or don't click on links, just, you know, just automatically, like really figure out, you know, if you know this person, what that link might be. I mean, you're just, you're always one link away from clicking uh, and getting a virus in the traditional financial world. So at the same time, you know, when you're on the blockchain, um, it's that same concept of before you send your money, you really want to have an understanding of uh, what you're, you know, what you're interacting with, who you're interacting with. And, and it can be very difficult. So that's why, you know, when they say it's a it's a trustless environment, it's a trustless environment in the sense that, uh, you know, the 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 stages of your money transmission are not going through various uh, trusted levels uh, of screening. 
Um, but at the same time, there, there is a very trusted uh, play uh, involvement in this ecosystem because you have to basically have a level of trust in the parties that you're doing business with uh, or, or interacting with. Last question for you. So NFTs are, are becoming popular, not just because of the image itself, but the, the whole minting and using smart contracts and the fact that you can trace them through the blockchain. Um, some people are experimenting with the idea of licensing with NFTs. Um, I've even heard some government officials saying you can put bills of lading as NFTs in the blockchain and trace it and have more auditability. But the question then comes, how do you verify and validate that the information that's being put in the blockchain is real and it's not doctored since the get-go? That's, that's, exactly, um, that's exactly why uh, you have to have a certain level of trust in the parties that are involved. You know, the companies have to uh they they have to understand who they're doing business with who their counterparty is do the due diligence and and then there is still that level of trust between parties uh you know to to know whether or not um the bill of lading is actually purporting to be what it actually is um uh, i've also seen uh you know use cases for blockchain like tracking parts in uh, in auto uh auto manufacturing and salvage yards and things like that like almost like a, a serial number they'll have they'll have a blockchain number associated with parts and so you know the the accuracy if you're if you're inputting the the information properly the accuracy is really much it's it's very desirable in blockchain but um if you if you're not dealing with the uh, the proper parties on on one end of a transaction it could be pretty disastrous on both sides completely agreed and you need to verify first before you can trust yep. otherwise you're you're just opening yourself up to be to be taken advantage of and in the best case scenario you just lose a little bit of money in the worst case scenarios you lose everything precisely so mike any last final parting words i would just say uh you know do your do your due diligence be your uh, be your own best advocate be your own uh best defense awesome if anybody wants to reach out to you to ask you more questions, how can they contact you? Yeah, so on Twitter, I'm at Blockchain Mike, and the O in Blockchain uh, is a zero, uh, paying homage to uh, you know to the the uh, the cyber uh, cyber uh, ecosystem. Uh, you can also find me Michael Fasnello on uh, on LinkedIn, just my name F A S A N E L L O, uh, first name Michael. And uh, same thing at uh, Anchain, uh, michael.fastanello at anchain.ai. I don't get uh, enough emails yet that I can uh, I can withhold the old email, but I'll uh, I'll take some emails from some of your listeners because I know you've got some quality listeners out there. Well, Michael, thank you so much for being with us. And as always to our audience, shoot us a hoot if you ever need anything. Should you ever be faced with a situation in which you need any form of investigative assistance or suspect there may be some illicit actors or activity at play, don't hesitate to shoot us a hoot. Owl Consultancy Group is a global corporate investigative firm dedicated to uncovering the facts, exposing evil, 
and diving deep. We provide the actionable intelligence you need to make the best decisions possible. If you're thinking of entering the fog, don't hesitate to shoot us a hoot. Our consultancy group is a boutique investigative consultancy firm specializing in deep dive investigations resulting in simple and actionable results. Our team is comprised of world-class multilingual investigators with several decades of combined experience. Our goal is to prevent clients from falling victim to illicit actors. Disclaimer. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed are the guest speaker's own and do not represent the views, thoughts, and opinions of our consultancy group. The material and information presented here is for general information purposes only. Each episode should be assessed on a case-by-case basis. The OWL Consultancy Group name and all forms and abbreviations are the proprietary of its owners, and its use does not imply endorsement of or opposition to any specific organization, product, or service.